Welcome, and thank you for listening to this presentation hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, United Kingdom, a center for Catholic theology in the Public Academy. For more information, visit our website at www.centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following lecture was presented in July 2019 at the Biennial Conference on Catholicism, Literature, and the Arts, organized in partnership by the Center for Catholic Studies, the University of Notre Dame, and Ushaw College. The following lecture was given by Dr. Martin Dubois, Assistant Professor in the Department of English Studies at Durham University, and is entitled Vernacular Hopkins. Thank you very much, Stephen, for a generous introduction. Um, so, so this lecture is going to be about one of the most innovative aspects of Hopkins' poetry, his use of, of vernacular language. And I'll attempt to relate such language to his social and religious contexts. Um, but before I start upon that topic in detail, um, it may be worth saying something by way of introduction about my perspective on Hopkins more generally and about how that's led me to thinking closely about aspects of language in his writing. Um, now, Hopkins' poetry is known for being daringly experimental uh, in its technical innovations, particularly in prosody, with the invention of what Hopkins named sprung rhythm, requiring the idiosyncratic use of musical notation to indicate how his poems are to be voiced, uh, as in this draft of um, Spring. His poems also express an ardent religious conviction that was shaped by his vocation as a Jesuit priest. And they also answer to the distinctive theories of self and being Hopkins articulated in private journals and reflections, for which he would coin the famous terms inscape and in stress. Now, in both these cases, that of sprung rhythm and that of inscape and in stress, Hopkins's critics have built his thought into a tight system. In the case of sprung rhythm, a theory and development has been made fixed and definite. In the case of inscape and in stress, the pursuit of a personal metaphysical scheme is seen to have been the constant object of Hopkins's poetic project. Now, this works fine for several of Hopkins' best-known poems, including Pied Beauty and As Kingfishers Catch Fire. Both are poems shaped according to Hopkins' personal metaphysic and which answer to his poetic theory. In common with a number of Hopkins' nature sonnets, they discern general laws of existence from the deep individuality of natural phenomena. An accumulation of precise natural details in Pied Beauty, for example, skies of couple colour as a brinded cow, and rose moles all in stipple upon trout that swim. These provide a perception of natural diversity that then yields to an ultimate principle of order, a principle of order capable of unifying discrete particulars. Now, these are poems that lend themselves very well to the notion that Hopkins' poetry answers always to his unique religio-aesthetic theory. But the organization of Hopkins's thought into a tight system works less well for poems that don't fit the supposed project. 
And here I'm thinking particularly um, of, of the poems which might, I guess, rather grandly be termed uh, uh, poems from Hopkins's middle and late periods. That is, the poems he wrote after his ordination in 1877, uh, once he left St. Bino's in North Wales and commenced his work as a priest. Uh, and also those poems written in his last years in Ireland. In, in the middle period of his writing, Hopkins composed little poetry, but those poems he did compose are often inspired by moments of priestly encounter and experience. Once in Ireland, there are extraordinary poems of mental and spiritual anguish, the so-called terrible sonnets, as well as further sonnets of extreme density and difficulty, perhaps most importantly, spelt from Sybil's leaves, and that nature is a Heraclitean fire and of the comfort of the resurrection. Now, as I see it, both the middle and late periods of Hopkins's writing are ill-served by the binding of all of Hopkins's poetry into a single scheme. They come off badly from what is, in effect, the elevation of pie beauty, or as Kingfisher's catch fire, into the paradigmatic uh, uh, Hopkins poem, uh, against which the rest of his writing is then uh, assessed and measured. When Hopkins's poetry is attributed with a fixed intention, and seen as the expression of the theory represented by Inscape and In Stress, many of his middle and late poems can at best be thought to have only private and individual significance. At worst, it will seem that such poems are in retreat from Hopkins's earlier philosophical and theological ambition, which seemingly he was no longer able to sustain. So my interest here is in what has been overlooked um, or ignored in the effort to synthesize Hopkins's thought, and in what happens when we consider the nature and insight of his poetry more flexibly. This is something I attempt in my book on Hopkins by exploring the shifting way in which Hopkins's poems imagine religious belief in individual history. It's also what has led me to the subject of vernacular language in his writing. So to, to, turn, to turn to language. Um, a, a traditional account of Hopkins's language would assert that it is hyper-referential, that it depends upon the identification of poetic language with faith in Christ as divine word, and that its newness stems from Hopkins's desire to achieve an intense unity between words and what they denote a unity which answers to his belief in the divine origin of language and to its continuity with the incarnate word. So it is, for example, that we encounter in Pied Beauty a remarkable chiming of vowel and consonant sounds. Skies of couple colour as a brinded cow, fresh fire-cold chestnut falls, bold, fallow and plough, whatever is fickle, freckled. The underlying assumption here, as one commentator has put it, is theological as well as, as well as technical, hinging on the deep relations Hopkins saw to exist in language, in which, as that commentator puts it, Christ underlies all words and thereby reconciles all oppositions in word, sound, and meaning. A possible danger with this account of Hopkins's language, I think, is that it will be applied too rigidly to the poems. 
as is perhaps shown by the fact that language was a main focus of those critics from about the 1960s through to the 1990s, who were intent upon encompassing Hopkins within what now seems perhaps a rather hoary thesis about Victorian literature and the crisis of faith and the disappearance of God across the 19th century. Uh, for these critics, language provided a kind of fault line in Hopkins's poetics. From their perspective, a poetic theory based upon the authority of the word made flesh through the incarnation of Christ and requiring absolute unity between words and their reference unravels when Hopkins attempts to put it into practice. Um, as one of these critics, Isabel Armstrong, says of the record of Deutschland, the frantic, hysterical attempt to fix meaning is the very cause of its dissolution. And in this way, it became possible for such critics to count even Hopkins among those 19th century writers unable to sustain a functioning Christian belief in the face of modern skepticism. Now, I want to argue that, that vernacular and idiomatic expression of Hopkins requires us to understand his language uh, more variably. And this is particularly the case when such expression occurs at the level of the phrase rather than of the individual word. Um, a good example here is the 1880 poem Felix Randall. This is on your, on your handout. Um, Uh, an energetic sonnet Hopkins wrote during the period he spent serving in a Jesuit parish in Liverpool, uh, St. Francis Xavier. The sonnet is a priest's reflection on the death of a young blacksmith to whom he had given spiritual care. I'll read it. Felix Randall. Felix Randall, the farrier. Oh, is he dead then? My duty all ended, who have watched his mould of man, big-boned and hardy handsome, pining, pining, till time when reason rambled in it, and some fatal four disorders, flesh there, all contended. Sickness broke him. Impatient he cursed at first, but mended, being anointed and all though a heavenlier heart began some months earlier, since I had our sweet reprieve and ransom tendered to him. Ah well, God rest him all robed, ever he offended. This seeing the sick endears them to us, us too it endears. My tongue had taught thee comfort, Touch had quenched thy tears, thy tears that touched my heart, child, Felix, poor Felix Randall. How far from then forethought of all thy more boisterous years, when thou at the random grim forge, powerful amidst peers, didst fettle for the great grey drapers his bright and battering. Now the language of this poem is not of one time, as none other than Stephen Regan has remarked, the sonnet repeatedly crosses a highly stylized poetic diction with a local speech derived from Lancashire dialect. And there's also present, particularly in the phrase, 
are sweet reprieve and ransom, a biblical and ecclesiastical idiom. Now, of the local speech, it's often noted in relation to the exclamation, ah, well, God rest him, all road, ever he offended. But Hopkins also used all road, or, or similar, um, in the Lancashire dialect sense of in whatever way in his sermons. But the, the instances from the sermons actually read quite differently to that of the poem. They're cases in which local usages provide for rhetorical effect a momentary departure from the preacher's ordinary speech, without, however, substantially altering the preacher's manner or disturbing the terms of the relationship between priests and people. Here are the examples. Um, there is a crowd of you, brethren, and amidst that crowd, some must be in this road. I mean, are out of your duty, out of God's grace, and in mortal sin. Or again, the scribes and Pharisees could not prove a fault against Christ, Hawkins remarked in a different sermon, but they could accuse. They could not convict, and yet they would condemn. False. They called him glutton and wine-bibber, Sabbath-breaker, false prophet, blasphemer, deserving of death, no matter by what name, a malefactor, any rogue. So, in contrast to these examples from the sermons, the, the ah well, God rest him, all road, ever he offended of Felix Randall, is an adoption of local speech not as rhetorical surprise and means of persuasion, but in an effort at memorialization, inhabiting the register that was Felix's own. There's the potential for that effort to read oddly or awkwardly, as a strained attempt to suggest a kind of camaraderie with Felix that more properly belongs to his fellows than to his priest. As with the actively casual being anointed and all, to describe the sacramental act of receiving unction with consecrated oil. This is a moment when the poem, unlike the examples of colloquial language from the sermons, assumes a voice that is not obviously or unproblematically its speaker's own. A different reading, of course, would be that the vernacular expression is here found adequate to the hope for God's pardon it expresses. Either way, the vernacularism stands out, for the poem otherwise retains its priestly guard, with the affection felt by this priest, or this individual parishioner, controlled and moderated by being made to figure relations between clergy and laity more generally, as occurs with the abstraction of this seeing the sick endears them to us, us too it endears a noticeably cooler and more detached line than the two that follow it in the poem. What is distinctive then about the use of a type of Felix's own speech to voice the speaker's sentiment is that it involves a departure from this manner of priestly reflection, sitting between the poem's us and its them. With uh, Felix Randall, then, we're evidently in quite different territory from the intense shaping of patterns of sound in language to suggest both identity between words and their reference and the interrelation of living things in creation, as occurs in both Pi Beauty and As Kingfisher's Catch Fire. 
The sonnet instead provides one example of Hopkins seeking to draw into his poetry the vigor he understood to exist in common speech. This is one source for his innovations in prosody. Hopkins once explained that sprung rhythm is the rhythm of common speech and of written prose when rhythm is perceived in them. Incorporating these into his poetry provided a way for Hopkins to move away from what he understood to be the over-regularization of poetic rhythm. It also provided inspiration for the unique language of the poems. Uh, as Hopkins told Robert Bridges in a letter of 1879, and this is also on your handout, I think, um, I cut myself off from the use of air or well nigh what time, say not or do not say, because though dignified, they neither belong to nor ever could arise from or be the elevation of ordinary modern speech. For it seems to me that the poetical language of an age should be the current language heightened, to any degree heightened and unlike itself, but not, I mean normally, passing speaks and graces are another thing, an obsolete one. So, a couple of things to note here. Um, the language for which Hopkins aims is still a kind of poetic diction, a special language for poetry. This is ordinary speech elevated and changed by its inclusion in poetry. But by this account, it takes its bearings more from the contemporary than from the archaic. And in that sense, Hopkins' principles align more closely with Wordsworth's espousal of the ordinary spoken idiom as a language for poetry uh, in the preface to the second edition of Lyrical Ballads, then with the norms of poetic diction current in his own period. And this led Hopkins to include a remarkable variety of vernacular expression in his poetry, both at the level of the phrase, as in, as in Felix Randall, and also at the level of the individual word. So to take just the words of the Brackets of Deutschland, asunder, blear, braid, burl, catch, comb, drift, Keen, peel, rash, road, sloggering, smart. These are all usages uh, suggested to have their origin in, in regional dialect. The, the strangeness of such words, when made part of writing that is not otherwise dialectal, is part of what makes Hopkins' poetry difficult. A difficulty was one of Hopkins' aims. He once wrote of two types of meanings that emerge from writing, in which either the meaning is to be felt without effort, as fast as one reads, or else, if dark at first reading, when once made out, to explode. Dialect words perform a crucial task uh, in Hopkins' poetics in, in their enabling of just this intensification of meaning. Um, as, as, as the critic Harry Plotkin has said, the use of dialect allows Hopkins to abstract words from the transparency of discourse and raise them to the level of a temporary obstacle, obliging hesitation over them and concentration on them. So that's their, that's their purpose in Hopkins' uh, poetics, if you like. That's not, however, their only importance. Of, of particular note for this conference, I think, is that vernacular language in Hopkins' poetry 
has his Catholic life and belief as one of its main contexts. Not, I have to say, that it's been much studied in this way. Indeed, uh, vernacular language is one of the few topics on which relatively little has been said about how Hopkins' Catholic belief shapes his poetry. Generally, in Hopkins, I think the, the areas of neglect uh, are elsewhere. Um, a problem I see with how we consider Hopkins' theological and philosophical awareness, uh, for example, is the, is the, is the imbalance given uh, in the attention, the imbalance in the attention given to his Anglican and Roman Catholic phases. Compare the abundance of commentary drawing out ever more intricate connections between Hopkins and Duns Scotus, for example, to the relative neglect of the influence on Hopkins of the Oxford movement's fascination with uh, patristic uh, theology. With vernacular language, though, there is no such difficulty. The depth of Hopkins' encounter with common speech is indelibly and specifically marked by his Roman Catholicism and in the following ways. There is, first of all, the basic yet fundamental point that Hopkins' conversion, and especially his Jesuit priestly ministry, led him to hear a great variety of regional speech. Chesterfield, Lee, Liverpool, Glasgow. These are among the places to which Hopkins, a Londoner by birth and upbringing, was posted as a Jesuit. It is doubtful that he would have lived in any of these places otherwise. But beyond that simple fact, uh, there is also the possibility that a connection exists between Hopkins's attraction to vernacular language and his awareness of his religious position. Um, this possibility has been articulated by two critics in particular. Tom Pauling, uh, who also includes seven poems by Hopkins in his favourite book of vernacular verse, and Eric Griffiths, whose chapter on Hopkins in the printed voice of Victorian poetry develops out of uh, Geoffrey Hill's commentary on Hopkins, and particularly Hill's idea that the English convert to Rome, however much he might gain, nonetheless suffered an abruption of familiar rhythm. So Pauline writes that uh, Hopkins listened intently to demotic speech in Liverpool, Glasgow, Lancashire, Milltowns, Wales, Dublin. By converting to Catholicism, he made himself marginal to the power structure in Britain and merged his imagination with the proletariat's experience. His Catholic faith removed him from the self-defining solitudes of Protestant individualism and gave him a sense of solidarity with communal suffering. That's all Pauline. Uh, from this perspective, Pauline says, it was from various regional and working class vernaculars that Hopkins drew his essential melodic inspiration. And the poet's devotion to raw common speech necessarily expresses a wide social viewpoint. So likewise, for Eric, for Eric Griffiths too, Hopkins' conversion meant that, and this is, this is a quotation, Known ways of speaking, linguistic habits, had to be faced and turned in a new direction. He credits the meshes of religious conviction and social experience for the distinctiveness of Hopkins's more mature achievement. Pointing particularly to the grind of, the, of colloquial against religious idiom in the poetry. Now, 
neither Pauline nor Griffiths delve much into the rootedness or otherwise of the poet's vernacularism, the specific places of his language, preferring to speak broadly of vernaculars or colloquialism rather than of individual dialects. The same is true of the two studies we have uh, that are dedicated to Hopkins's language. They make clear that the poet's interest in dialect was in large part inspired by the new comparative philology current in his period, which in demonstrating language to be historically contingent and rapidly fluctuating, changed attitudes to non-standard varieties, in particular by attending to the significance of vernacular speech in linguistic alteration and growth. And one consequence of their framing of Hopkins's fascination with dialect as encompassed by his interest in philology is that the specific origin of the dialect words recorded in the journals and deployed in the poems is made to seem of relatively little significance. Indeed, this is a point made explicitly in one of these studies, whose author remarks that dialect words and expressions rarely serve to localize specifically in Hopkins' poetry. Instead, he argues, these words serve to mark an entire world beyond the precincts of polite society. They give a feeling of places beyond the pale of the linguistic norm, yet rooted in the common ground of English. Now, for me, this is too general. And I want to argue uh, for the remainder of the lecture that the, the, the specific places of Hopkins' vernacular language in the poetry are, are essential to its significance. One reason why Hopkins was drawn to local speech was that he was infused by the idea of dialect as an index of origins. His philological enthusiasm for dialect was fused with a linguistic nativism that mythicized the Anglo-Saxon origins of dialect words. Here is Hopkins writing about the Dorset dialect poet William Barnes in an 1866 letter to fellow Barnes enthusiasts. Uh, there weren't huge numbers of these, but um, uh, Coventry Patmore, a fellow soul. Okay, so this is uh, Hopkins on, on William Barnes. I grant in Barnes an unusual independence and originality due partly to his circumstances. It is his naturalness that strikes me most. He is like an embodiment or incarnation or man use of the country, of Dorset, of rustic life and humanity. He comes like Homer and all poets of native epic, provided with epithets, images, and so on, which seem to have been tested and digested for a long time, for a long age, in their native air and circumstances, and to have a keeping which nothing else could give. But in fact, they, they are rather all of his own finding and first throwing off. This seems to me very high praise. It is true that they are not far-fetched or exquisite. I mean, for instance, as mentions of rooks or brooks, but they are straight from nature and quite fresh. His rhythms are charming and most characteristic. These two smack of the soil. Now, inspiring this list of what um, Barnes is said to be like, an embodiment or incarnational man use of the country of Dorset of Russell like humanity, is a familiar Victorian idealization of folk culture and folk speech as tokens of an unchanging and organic rural order, an order which stands in implicit contrast to processes of industrialization and urbanization which threaten to imperil it. The preference for writing which smacks of the soil 
is for the natural over the artificial, for the hearty over the refined, for the humble over the grand, for labour over leisure. An advantage of dialect in this respect is that even just the very fact of its use in poetry helps to mark out some of these distinctions. It sort of guarantees the spontaneousness of the thought. Hopkins wrote it elsewhere, again in relation to Barnes, and puts you in the position to appraise it on its merits as coming from nature and not books and education. So how, how does Hopkins' interest in dialect as an index of origins shape his use of vernacular language in the poetry? Um, let me take an example here, uh, Inverse Nave, uh, from 1881. This is on your, on your handout. Um, Inverse Nave is a poem written when Hopkins, um, as, as a brief respite from after having concluded uh, supply work he was doing at a parish in Glasgow, he was given some time off and uh, he was able to visit uh, Loch Lomond and the falls at Inverse Nave. And there they are, if you can see that here. Inverse Nave, September 28, 1881. This darksome burn, horseback brown, his roll rock high road roaring down, in coop and in comb the fleece of his foam, flutes and low to the lake falls home. A wind puff bonnet of fawn froth turns and twindles over the broth of a pool so pitch black, fell frowning, it rounds and rounds despair to drowning. Degged with dew, dappled with dew, are the groins of the braves that the brook treads through. Wiry heathpacks, flitches of fern, and the bee bonny ash that sits over the burn. What would the world be once bereft of wet and of wildness? Let them be left, oh, let them be left, wildness and wet. Long live the weeds and the wilderness. Now, in this state is Hopkins' sole attempt at a Scottish poem, and it's identified as such not just by its subject, but also by lexical choices, such as burn the stream, braze the riverbank, and also the compound bead bonny in bead bonny ash, uh, about which you don't need to agree with the critic Humphrey Tonkin, who has us excitedly imagine the ash tree sitting over the burn for all the world like a Scots lassie, decked out in her best clothes to see that Hopkins attempts to have his language take on the aspect of his poem's place. Now, what surprises here is that amidst the Scottishness uh, are elements of English regional dialect. I'll leave aside Twindles in line six, which is regularly glossed by editors as, as, as coming from Lancashire, uh, but for which there are other possibilities. Instead, I want to think about Degged in line nine, Degged with Dew, Dappled with Dew. Now, Norman Mackenzie, uh, in his edition of Hopkins, identifies Degg as North Country dialect for sprinkled. Cathy uh, Phillips, in her Oxford Authors edition, and Mackenzie again, and W.H. Gardner in their fourth edition of the poems, identify it more particularly as a Lancashire dialect word. Uh, it seems that Lancashire is indeed where the word is most common, though um, 
it's also used in Yorkshire. Um, and, and given that Hopkins gathered much of his awareness of, of Lancashire dialect, well at Stonyhurst, in the Ribble Valley, um, kind of on the border between Lancashire and Yorkshire, perhaps we, we don't need to be too rigid here. Now, Degg is a useful example, I think, because from one perspective, it seems to support the idea that Hopkins' use of dialect words is generic. How else to make sense of the appearance of a Lancashire or North Country dialect word in this attempted Scottish poem then to note that the line in which it appears is strongly alliterative, and thus to observe with Carrie Plotkin that dialect words recommend themselves in the phonetic context of a line or a poem for qualities of sound not supplied by normal alternatives. However, here's an alternative, or at least a, an additional reading. So it's worth, first of all, making the point that the fact Degg is a Lancashire or North Country word reflects Hopkins' long exposure to this particular dialect. Um, not just in the three periods he spent at Stonyhurst in the 1870s and 1880s, but also early on, uh, thanks to the prevalence of Lancashire men among the lay brothers of the Society of Jesus in Britain during Hopkins' lifetime. Now, in the nature of its origins, the Lancashire dialect was held to have qualities that would have appealed to the linguistic nativist in Hopkins. Lancashire expressions were thought to be genuine relics of the old mother tongue, as William Gaskell, husband of Elizabeth Gaskell, uh, put it in his 1854 lectures on the Lancashire dialect. Instead of saying that the Lancashire dialect is a corruption of English, Gaskell says, it would seem truer to say that English is very often a corruption of Anglo-Saxon. So, what's more, the characteristics of the dialect noted by local commentators at the time who variously identify its masculine vigour, its terseness, its directness, and rugged force align with some of the qualities that Hopkins sought to bring to, to the language of his poetry. He once remarked in a letter that my style tends always more towards Dryden, the most masculine of our poets. His style and his rhythms lay the strongest stress of all our literature on the naked few and sinew of the English language. So, Gaskell, in his lecture, notes that the, 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 the word which Lancashire man employs for sprinkling with water is to deg, and that when he degs his garden, he uses a degging can. Other commentaries of the time have the same emphasis. Deg is recorded to mean to wet, sprinkle, to water plants. Degging is watering. Um, so uses of the word are often in the same kind of familiar domestic strain. There are also, however, instances of the word uh, of the type and tense in which Hopkins uses it. The closest usage recorded by the English Dialect Dictionary is, in fact, remarkably close. Uh, this comes from the improbable volume, The Song of Solomon in 24 English Dialects, printed in 1862 by William Barnes's friend Louis Lucien Bonaparte, nephew of Napoleon, uh, a comparative linguist and dialectologist who devoted much of his energy to assembling versions of biblical texts in a variety of European languages and dialects. So, uh, uh, chapter, chapter 5 of the Song of Solomon in the King James Version includes the phrase, my head is filled with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. Uh, a phrase which is rendered in the dialect of the Yorkshire district of Craven, in Bonaparte's volume, 
um, by, by contributor Henry Anthony Littledale um, as, and here I, I'm afraid I can only apologise for attempting Yorkshire dialect in the absence of South London. Uh, my, my head is decked with dew and my curls with drops of finit. Apologies, sorry about that. Okay, uh, now, of course, in several ways, this is just miles away from Inversnade, but I think it at least allows us to notice uh, that the phrase decked with dew, and not just the word decked, was at least imaginable from the perspective of dialectal usage in the poeticized version of it provided in Bonaparte's volume. Indeed, the presence of this phrase in, in the state makes me wonder if we haven't got Hopkins's use of dialect, as it were, back to front. It isn't that the Lancashire dialect element in this Scottish poem shows Hopkins's use of dialect to be generic, but that Hopkins wished to deploy specific dialectal ways of thought and speech. It's worth noting here, I think, that the qualities then attributed to Lancashire dialect mirror what Hopkins felt about Lancashire Catholics. It might have been expected that Hopkins, as an Oxford-educated Newmanite convert to Rome, would thrive best amidst the splendor of the Jesuit church at Farm Street in London, with its well-to-do congregation, where he spent a few months as select preacher in 1878. In fact, um, he was nowhere happier then in the brief period he spent as temporary curate at the Lancashire mill town of Lee at the end of 1879 and beginning of 1880. A letter of 1879 praises the charming and cheering heartiness of these Lancashire Catholics. Another still on the same theme observes uh, that with Lancastrians uh, I felt at home. It, it is as if I, ha I had been born to deal with them. Now, Hopkins, as Joseph Bristow has observed, had a zeal for the tough male body. And in poems including Harry Plowman and Thomas Garland, adoration for the virility of the laboring man is shadowed by anxiety for the health of the nation and for the future of its empire. His interest in dialect, I think, had a similar basis. Having inherited a romantic conception of language as embodying national character, Hopkins' favoring of the heartiness of Lancashire dialect enabled him to evoke stable roots for English culture at a time when, in his eyes, its future appeared uncertain on multiple fronts. In Hopkins's journal, philological jottings are framed by an idea of Lancashire dialect as wholesomely and vigorously customary and unaffected. And the same goes for comments on dialect made in Hopkins's letters. Um, in one of the advantages of Stonyhurst, uh, for example, uh, Hopkins found was that uh, uh, Lancashire is talked with naivety on the premises. Compare this with Hopkins' thoughts about what he termed Victorian English, which he called a bad business, uh, comparing it unfavorably with Elizabethan English and what Hopkins recognized as the living, masculine, native rhetoric of the Elizabethan. Um, so, uh, living masculine native, these were the qualities that, that also drew Hopkins to dialect um, and uh, what made him prize dialect for its difference from what he understood to be the bad business of the present. 
Now, of course, to say this is to depart somewhat from Pauline's view that Hopkins was led by the marginality of his position as a Roman Catholic convert to merge his imagination with a proletariat experience. But while Pauline's idea of Hopkins' language is highly suggestive, I think, we also need to acknowledge that any such identification comes mixed with other possibly countervailing strands of feeling thought. And locating Hopkins's vernacular language in specific places helps to make this apparent. Um, in Felix Randall, of course, vernacular language and the laboring body exist in combination. In addition to the inclusion of Lancashire dialects, uh, there is Lancashire brawn, celebrated in the thundering ending to the poem, which recalls Felix at the random grim forge, powerful amidst his fettling for the great grey dray horse, his bright and battering sandal. Now, I think in, in the case of Felix Randall, um, it's revealing that this poem, written in Liverpool, was for quite a long time assumed to have been inspired elsewhere than Liverpool. It was repeatedly said that Felix Randall was experienced at Lee. Uh, that's, that's how the, one of Hopkins's, the editor of the sermon puts it, experienced at Lee, the poem's experience of it. This assumption most likely arose in recognition of Hopkins's dislike of Liverpool. Uh, he found the work he had to do there very harassing, and the place itself yet more so, of all places the most museless. He would later record that my Liverpool and Glasgow experience laid upon my mind a conviction, a truly crushing conviction, of the misery of town life to the poor, and more than to the poor, of the misery of the poor in general, and of the degradation even of our race, of the hollowness of this century's civilization. It made even life a burden to me to have it daily thrust upon me the things I saw. Among those, the things Hopkins saw was spitting, so in your hand up, Spitting in the north of England is very, very common with the lower classes. As I went up Brunswick Road or any street at Liverpool on a frosty morning, it used to disgust me to see the pavement regularly starved with the spit of workmen going to their work. And they do not turn aside, but spit straight before them as you approach, as a Frenchman remarked to me with a pulse, and I could only blush. His response to a May Day horse procession recorded in the letters of Robert Bridges was similar in feelings. Again, on your handout. While I admired the handsome horses, I remarked for the thousandth time with sorrow and loathing the base and besotted figures and features of the Liverpool crowd. When I see the fine and manly Norwegians that flock hither to embark for America, walk our streets and look about them, it fills me with shame and wretchedness. These reactions were, were, were perhaps, I think, what encouraged the early impression that the, the inspiration for Felix Randall did not come from Liverpool. We now know that impression uh, most likely to have been false. It was discovered quite a while ago now by the Jesuit scholar Alfred Thomas that Hopkins, when Liverpool had attended to a man named Felix Spencer, um, resident of, of Birchfield Street, and a farrier, or blacksmith, who subsequently died of tuberculosis. Hopkins entered Spencer's death into the church notice book. A few days later, he wrote Felix Randall. Felix Spencer was, Alfred Thomas suggests, the original for Felix Randall. Yet perhaps that early impression of Felix Randall as being inspired before Hopkins got to Liverpool, as, if you like, 
a Lancashire poem rather than a Liverpool one wasn't altogether misplaced. One is or was in the other, of course, but Hopkins himself made the common distinction between the two, writing from Liverpool of his appreciation of Lancastrians, but in the past tense. His move from Lee to Liverpool was only of 20 miles, yet culturally and linguistically these places were much further apart. <coughs> As the historian John Belcham has discussed, the industrial conurbations of the north grew out of conglomerations of small towns and villages, augmented by short-distance rural in-migration, which tended to reinforce their culture, character, and status as regional centres. The urban speech of Manchester Salford and Leeds Bradford differed from that of the surrounding countryside, but it remained speech of the same kind. Liverpool, according to Belgium, was different. Long distance in migration, the multi-ethnic, mainly Celtic inflow, transformed Liverpool, setting it apart from its environment. According to Belcham, who a uh, good Liverpool historian as he is, can be a little partisan, uh, polyglot Liverpool was the most multicultural and un-English of Victorian provincial cities, and it stood proudly above the coke town monoculture of adjacent Lancastrian textile and industrial towns. <laughs> okay. So Felix Randall um, is, is differently located to the Liverpool Belcham describes. One can understand why George Orwell, in a radio broadcast of 1941, was led to think of Felix as the small, independent village craftsman, and of the poem as recreating the atmosphere of an English village. Only in the description of the random grim forge of the penultimate line does the poem's vernacular language hint at conditions that are not time-honoured. The English dialect dictionary cites usages from Lancashire and Cheshire for random in the dialect sense of irregular stone, rubble. And that sense could well apply here, but the word's resonance surely also goes beyond building materials, something that could equally be said of grim, a word for which Hopkins' editors direct attention to the dialect sense of grimy or dirty, but that may carry something of its ordinary sense too. Yet the suggestion of irregularity and dismalness here, the random in Randall that stands in need of ransom, is swept away in the poem's extraordinary closing line, which fuses the dialectal, fettle in the sense of fix or restore to health, and the seemingly classical, with the horseshoe become a magnificent sandal. Indeed, it's true to the nature of the poem's esteem for the skill of Felix's work and to its sense of the poignancy of his death that in Hopkins's poem, he is a farrier, a profession that also appeared on Felix Spencer's death certificate, a craftsman who traditionally not only shod horses, but also cured them when diseased or lame, and not the more general blacksmith the profession I have more often seen listed for Felix Spencer in various public records. It is the old provincial ways of language and of care and labour that matter most in this Hopkins's soul Liverpool poem. One has to look elsewhere than Felix Randall uh, in Hopkins's poetry for Irish influence. 
to look, in fact, for the poems actually written in Ireland. But first, some context. Hopkins's duties in both Glasgow and Liverpool were concentrated among the poor Irish, as he himself described them. By contrast, after Hopkins's move to Dublin in 1884, to um, so this building on St. Stephen's Green, uh, as Professor of Classics at University College Dublin and Fellow of the Royal University of Ireland, he taught a rising Catholic middle class for whom education was primarily a passport to careers and respectability. That fact did not prevent him from continuing when in Ireland to pursue an amateur philologist's close interest in folk speech. As can be seen from the examples of Irish words and phrases he collected for Joseph Bright's English dialect dictionary. 89 of Hopkins's contributions were printed in the dictionary when it was eventually published in six volumes uh, between 1898 and 1905, uh, including under the entry for ARA, an exclamation of surprise, uh, frequently used in accosting a person and calling attention, for which Hopkins provided the example, ARA, sweet myself, said a youth after making a good hit at cricket, as he thought unheard. Also under the entry for coat, where the phrase, with his coat, with his coat buttoned behind, meaning looking like a fool, uh, Hopkins has, here comes Paddy from Cork with his coat buttoned behind. And finally, under Blarney Stone, as in the phrase, to have taken a lick of the Blarney Stone, meaning to have the gift of flattery or persuasiveness, to which Hopkins was able to add information about the existence of a certain stone in the walls of Castle Blarney in County Cork, the kissing or licking of which is fabled to convey the gift of Blarney. Hopkins found comedy in Hiberno-English. He parodied Irish speech to this effect in the letter home to his sister Kate of this period, for example. When it appears in his poetry, however, the effect is different. That appearance may be limited to just one or two possible instances, but it again signals the importance of locating Hopkins's vernacular language in specific places. Uh, the crucial poem here is spelt from Sybil's Leaves, a poem Hopkins composed over several years in Ireland, and this is again on your handout. Spelt from Sybil's Leaves. Ernest. Earthless, equal, attunable, vaulty, voluminous, stupendous. Evening strains to be times vast, wombable, homeable, hearse of all night. Her fond yellow horn light wound to the west. Her wild hollow horn light hung to the height waist. Her earliest stars, earl stars, stars principal, overbenders, fire featuring heaven. For earth, her being has unbound, her dapple is at end, astray or a swarm, all perutha in throngs, self in self steeped and pashed, quite, disremembering. Dismembering all now. Heart, you round me right with 
Our evening is over us. Our night whelms, whelms, and will end us. Only the beak-leaved boughs dragonish, damask the tall, smooth, bleak, blight, black, ever so black on it. Our tale, O oh, our oracle, let life wane, ah, let life wane, off her once skeined, stained, veined variety, upon all on two spools. Part, pen, pack. Now her all in two flocks, two folds, black, white, right, wrong, reckon but, wreck but, mine, but these two. Where of a world where but these two tell each off the other, of a rack where self wrong self-strung, sheath and shelterless, thoughts against thoughts in Rome's line. Now this is another of Hopkins' poems constructed according to deep correspondences in language, in this case relying on a series of etymological connections. Volti and voluminous, vast west and waste, earliest and earl, bend and unbound, disremembering and dismembering, blink and black, tool and tail, right and rack, reckon and wreck, wrong and wrong. Each of these word pairings was at the time believed to share the same root. Of the poem's dialect words, both Thrutha, defined uh, as, as confused or disorderly, and disremembering, meaning to forget, are suggested to have been common in Irish usage. Both are words for which you could imagine Hopkins submitting examples to the English dialect dictionary. Compare Barney McGurk isn't one that would disremember a friend, the example actually given in the dictionary, with Hopkins's Here Comes Paddy from Popton Court with his coat buttoned behind. Vernacular language in Start from Sybil's Leaves thus uh, joins the work of the amateur philologist to that of the experimental poet, for whom the deployment of common words out of their customary context makes the poem's diction radically unfamiliar and new, as well as drawing attention to the material quality of language itself. The dialect words Ruther and disremembering feature largely in Matthew Campbell's recent argument that Spelt from Sybil's Leaves is not just a poem set in Ireland, but an Irish poem. Campbell notes that the poem is within a tradition of evening poems in English poetry, including William Collins's Ode to Evening. His claim is that in transplanting a tradition of English poetry into a place where it should be at home, part of its own United Kingdom, Hopkins actually finds that the, the, the tradition cannot work in peace. Whereas, Hop, whereas Collins' poem sustains a perpetual evening in which the sun never actually goes down, Hopkins' Irish evening is fearful and about an end, the end of evening and life and indeed the ultimate end of time. 
In terms of language specifically, Campbell describes Spelt and Sybil's Leaves as, a syn as syntheses of the various poetic languages that its author wrote, English, Welsh, Hiberno-English, Petrarch, and Old English. This Four Nations poem, in his reading, attempts to find linguistic common ground between its various parts. I, I agree with this, but would also note that while vernacular language in earlier Hopkins poems discernibly smacks of the soil, to borrow the phrase Hopkins used of William Barnes, it has in his Dublin period become more multiform. Alongside the use of dialect expressions that signal the old and the rural, and so to the linguistic purists, also the good and the natural, there are also in alternative elements. The clouds that chevy on an air-built thoroughfare at the beginning of that nature is a Heraclitean fire, for example, do so according to a dialectal usage. Chevy only recently emerged. And the final lines of the same poem provide an astonishing rendition of the force of the resurrection. I am all at once what Christ is, since he was what I am. And this jack joke, poor potsherd, patch, matchwood, immortal diamond is immortal diamond. Jack, the common fellow, is of the same hearty type as the Tom and Dick of Tom Garland and of the Harry of Harry Plowman, but he's also matchwood, a usage given new currency by the invention of the friction match earlier in Hopkins's century. The habit of Hopkins's dialect usages, their anchoring in old and customary ways, seems in this and in other such cases to give way to a sense that vernacular instances, uh, the vernacular language shows language to be changing, composite, and multifarious. So where does all this leave um, uh, the meshes of religious conviction and social experience in Hopkins? Well, to conclude, I hope I've shown that meshes is exactly the right word here. Hopkins's vernacularism weaves together several different and sometimes contradictory impulses. Combining the philological search for stable roots in language, roots that might affirm national characteristics, with egalitarian and spiritually motivated curiosity about the demotic speech he heard around him, and its potential to revivify poetic diction. What's remarkable here as always with Hopkins, is the density and the intensity with which formal and linguistic experimentalism intersects with his social and religious awareness. Thank you.